eschatological. Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Zechariah chapter uh, 13, excuse me, chapter 12. We're doing chapter 12 and 13 this morning, so we'll be looking at both those chapters. So if you want to go ahead and turn to chapter 12 of Zechariah. Um, This is the last burden or the last word of the Lord, these last uh, three chapters of Zechariah. Um, it's all basically one message. We're only going to look at a portion of it this morning. Uh, we'll only be looking at the first two chapters, but all three chapters are uh, one message, basically. Chapters 12 through 13 that we'll be looking at this morning can be divided into four main sections. Chapters 12, verses 1 through 9, describes the victory of Judah and Jerusalem over the hostile nations. And then verses 10 through 14 talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Jews and the appearing of the pierced one, and it'll result in Israel's national repentance. If you're taking notes, it's kind of a hard thing to write. But anyways, it's, it's where uh, the Jews will recognize that Jesus is their Savior. That's in verses 10 through 14. And then chapter 13 deals with the cleansing of the nation as a result of this. Um, now, what's interesting, when I was doing my study in here, there's a few phrases and words that are repeated over and over. And usually in the Bible, when things are repeated over and over, there's significance to it. And I want to draw your attention to three of those. First of all, the first thing that you'll see as you go through these, if you've ever read it or as we'll read it today, the words, the phrase, in that day, appears uh, in chapters 12 and 13 alone. It appears nine times in the scriptures. And what that's speaking about is all these prophecies basically are tied to the same event. And uh, the event is a time in the future when God is going to deal directly with the nation of Israel. So that's what we're really looking at today, a future event when God deals directly with the nation of Israel. Uh, That event is going to be start with uh, the Great Tribulation. When we think of in that day, sometimes you think of it just a day. Well, it's, this is a, a period of time, and it deals. It starts with the Great Tribulation, um, and that's really known as the time of Jacob's trouble, when God will once more be dealing with the nation of Israel in a very, a very uh, special way that we'll be looking at this morning. Paul, in Romans 11, describes this same time, this same day, or the same period of time, when all Israel shall be saved. Now, there are Christians who believe that God's blessings have been transferred from Israel as soon as the church was formed, that all those blessings that were promised Israel, they've been transferred to the church, that the church is now the recipients of God's blessings. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a theological term known as replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel in, in the blessings and the prophecies and the promises of God. Well, people that believe that, they are going to have to, they, they have to struggle with these few chapters that we're going to be looking at this morning, because this is definitely uh, prophecies dealing with the nation of Israel. Um, in fact, the next uh, word or phrase that I want to draw your attention to, in this case it's a word, it's two words, Judah and Jerusalem. In chapters 12 and 13 alone, those words appear 11 times. Again, it's significant. These prophecies are regarding a literal Judah and a literal physical Jerusalem. 
and people who, uh, you know, usually if you're if if you have a little bit of a different eschatol eschatological end times view, put it that way. <laughs> if you have a different end times view, or, or you know, a lot of times you come up to scriptures like this, and it's like, well, I, I don't know how to fit it into my theology, so I, I, I'm going to spiritualize it. And so that's what people do. They'll take passage like this, and they'll spiritualize it. Well, the problem is, it's really hard to spiritualize this next phrase that's going to show up that, that I want to draw your attention to, and that is the house of David. The house of David, not David Morrison, but the house of David. Um, That occurs five times in chapters 12 through 13 alone. And what that reinforces is the fact that these prophecies are specifically Jewish in nature, and they're not symbolic of the church. It's really hard to find a spiritual replacement for names of specific tribes in Israel. We'll come across that in verses 12, in verses 12 through 13. Because not only the house of David, a, a, an individual is mentioned, but the house of Nathan, the house of Levi, the house of Shemai, the house, again, the house of Nathan. Uh, it's hard to spiritualize. How do you spiritualize that? And maybe there are people that do that. But uh, So chapters 12 through 13 describe God's interve- intervention in the nation-state of Israel in the future. And so we're going to look at that first portion, that first section, verses 1 through 9, the victory of Judah and Jerusalem over the hostile nations. Why don't you read with me, beginning in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel... Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile, and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah." In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Let's take this down and we'll just break this, break it apart a little bit. Beginning with verse 1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Now, when I read that, you know, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, by the way. When I read that, it's like, it sounds like it's a prophecy or or it's a judgment against Israel. Um, uh, But it's not. It's, what it really means is it's concerning Israel. This is the word of the Lord that concerns Israel. Secondly, 
in verse 1, we are told who is speaking all of this in all of chapter 12. And it's the Lord. The Lord God is, is giving this word to Zechariah. And he describes himself as he who stretches out the earth, who lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the spirit of man within him. It's an interesting thing when you look at this. Notice that all of these are present participles. In other words, he says, notice he says that he's the Lord who stretches out the earth as opposed to the Lord who stretched out the earth. You know, when, when God created everything, he stretched out the earth. But he says he's the Lord who stretches. It's an ongoing thing that we're reading here. He says he's the Lord who lays the foundation of the earth as opposed to the Lord who laid the foundation of the earth. He's the Lord who forms the spirit of man within him as opposed to the one who formed. Now, it's true. God formed the spirit of of man within him. God laid the foundations of the earth, and he stretched out the heavens. God did that with creation. But what this is indicating is that the Lord is still involved in his creation. Some people, they they get into this, you know, kind of they get this mix between evolution and creation. They go, well, okay, I believe that God created it, but he kind of like kind of created it and let let evolution kind of take over. Well, that's false. That's a lie. God is still involved in creation. He's still involved in your and my lives. He is still active. And one of the awesome things that I love and when I'm when I'm just going through days, you know, you're praying for things. I hope you people are people of prayer. I, I, prayer is so important, but you know, you you pray for things and then you see God God's hand in it. What an awesome thing to see the Lord just moving and and making things happen. And the Lord is still active in your and my lives. In fact, in Hebrews, regarding creation, in Hebrews, we're told he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Everything is still staying together by his power, by the word of his power. Now, there is time coming. It's in in 2 Peter, it talks about there's going to be a time when the Lord basically going to say, that's it. And then everything just kind of like melts and dissolves, you know. But right now, there's this cosmic glue. Scientists are like, what is this stuff? We don't know what it is. But theoretically, there's something that holds all these atoms together. Well, it's God's power. It's the power of the Lord that's holding all things together. And he's going to be, and and so he's introducing himself this way, I think, to let the Jewish people know that, yeah, I'm the God who created things, I'm the God who's involved, and you can trust that I'm going to be continued to be involved in your existence and in your life in the future, and in this case, in the nation of Israel in particular. In verse 2, he says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. That cup of drunkenness, it could also be translated a cup of trembling. Remember back in chapter 1, the nations were at ease while Judah was brought low, and it angered God. It's like these nations, these enemies, they're all kicking back, and they're, they're, you know, while Israel is suffering, his people are suffering. Well, Israel drank the cup of suffering, but in that day... The nations that come up against Israel are going to suffer. They will tremble. Verse 3, it shall, all, it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. God is going to make Jerusalem a heavy stone. In other words, it's one you cannot lift and hurl away. 
That's true even today. You know, every country, basically, the question is, what do we do with the nation of Israel? You know, uh, when, when Israel was formed as a nation, all the countries around were trying to, you know, give the Jews this place, and there was all this stuff. Jerusalem has been, you know, you, a day or a few days can't go by without you don't hear about Jerusalem in the news. It's a very heavy stone. A lot of our, our presidential administrations, how do, we, how do we interact with Jerusalem? There are our, our allies, but we don't want to offend the, Jewish, or the Muslim people. And, and so it's like, well, we can't call Jerusalem the capital of Israel because, hey, yeah, that's going to offend a lot of people. And so we, so far, our nation has not recognized Jerusalem as the capital. We recognize Tel Aviv. Well, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It should be. It's, it's the eternal city. Well, it's not yet the eternal city, but it won't be. You know, you look about, look at the Temple Mount in Israel, in Jerusalem. That place is the most contested piece of property on the planet. It's the most contested piece of property. And Jerusalem in the past had been an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among, the na- among all the nations in Deuteronomy 28.37. They had been a reproach and a taunt and a curse in all places, Jeremiah 24, 9. But in that day, Jerusalem's going to be a heavy, burdensome stone to all people, to all peoples. Any nation that comes against it, trying to heave it away, hurl it out of there, wipe it off into the ocean. You've heard that before. They're going to be destroyed. You know, those nations who even today are committed to wiping Israel off the face of the map, they're not going to succeed. You know, you hear these threats from these countries, how they hate Israel and the Zionist regime, and they're going to wipe them off and everything. I, you know, I feel bad for the people, for those nations, because God's going to judge them. But they're not going to get wiped out. Jerusalem's not going to get wiped off the face of the, of the map. It won't happen. It's God's promise. I want to read you something. I'm not going to read the whole article, but um, it's, uh, you know, we, our government just, uh, and a lot of other governments, signed this agreement with Iran, right, that we're uh, to allow them to do their nuclear stuff without, you know, any, any kind of problems and stuff. And uh, since we've signed that agreement with them, um, Iran has been conducting ballistic missile tests. Hmm, interesting. Well, listen to this. In March... Iran sparked international condemnation when it test-fired two ballistic missiles, one emblazoned with the phrase, Israel must be wiped out in Hebrew. That was, that, they actually marked that on their missile that they were testing. We know, we're not stupid, or maybe our leaders are stupid, but we know that they are, I mean, that's the whole, they want to wipe out Israel. But the good news is they won't succeed. But the bad news is for the people of Iran, it's, it's going to be bad. Because there is coming a time when God's going to judge them for that. They're going to suffer the same wrath that other nations face. Do you remember Nazi Germany? They wanted to completely exterminate the Jews. Where are they today? The Assyrians, they hated Israel. Where are they today? All of those ancient enemies of Israel, they no longer exist because God judged them. Well, continuing on here, verse 4. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will bless, excuse me, and will strike every horse of the people with blindness. You know, you go back through Israel's history. How often has the Lord given them victory over their enemies, not by making them really strong fighting, but basically confusing the enemy? 
He's done that so many times. When Pharaoh and his army, remember the children of Israel, they, they, were, they were allowed to leave Egypt, and, they, and they're getting there, and they're, right, they're, they're facing the Red Sea. Egypt's to the back of them, and all of a sudden, here's Pharaoh and his army coming at them. And here's these former slaves, no weapons, no nothing. What are they going to do? They're right there. They're sitting ducks, basically, with their back against the wall, so to speak. And what does God do? That cloud, remember the cloud that, that led the children of Israel in the wilderness during the daytime? There was a pillar of fire at night that led them. But during the daytime, there was that cloud. That cloud that led the children of Israel, God used that cloud to actually cause blindness to the Pharaohs, to the Pharaoh's armies. They couldn't find their way to, to get to the, to the uh, Israelites. God has done that throughout their history. Remember Lot and the angels in Sodom, the, the men of Sodom, they were trying to get to these, to these angels, and, and the angels struck the men with blindness, so they, they, grew up, they couldn't find their way. God confused them, gave them blindness. Gideon and his 300 men against the Midianites, the Lord caused such confusion among the Midianites, they just started killing each other. The list goes on and on and on, uh, even into Israel's recent history. I, 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 I wish I could have just shared a few of those stories with you, but we'd be here for quite a while. But Israel's recent history is full of examples where God confused the enemies of Israel. In 1948, the War of Independence for Israel, God confused them. There, I was reading last night, I just thought, well, I'm going to just kind of brush up on so I was reading some of this stuff where, where they would go into a city and, and the, the people of the city thought it was like the Iraqis that were coming and so they, they weren't going to fight them. They were like cheering them and the Israelites were like, why are these people cheering us? You know, Well, they, they were confused. There's so many times like that. Tank battles, it's amazing. And not just the War of Independence, but the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War. God has been confusing their enemies. Now, with, recently with that Lebanon War and stuff, it seemed like Israel wasn't doing so hot in that one. And, and I don't know, God's got a plan and a purpose in all of these things. But throughout their history, we've seen that um, God has done that for, for his people. Verse 5, And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength, and the Lord of hosts their God. Now, one translation says the clans of Judah shall say this in their heart. And that word, the governors, can mean a chief or a captain, like a literal governor or a political leader, but it can also mean an intimate friend or a close companion. And I think that's where some of the translators use the word clan. Either way, I think it fits. The clans of Judah or the leaders of Judah are not going to be able to claim any individual glory or take any credit for their deliverance. They're going to recognize that their strength is in their fellow countrymen, not in the men themselves, but in the men who have the Lord God as their help. There's just, it's just a coming together. There's no opportunity for individual pride when the Lord delivers them. I love how the Lord works in individual people in this church. God moves on the hearts of different people. And, and I, I can say, well, you know, I'm the pastor of the church. I'm, the, I'm, I'm what holds this together. No, it's you people that hold this together. The Lord working on each one of your hearts and moving. I mean, last, last, yesterday, having the, the people come in to help, and, and I know there are people that couldn't because of certain circumstances. I don't want anybody to feel bad, but those that came and were able to help, what a blessing it was to have the Lord move on the hearts of those individuals. They were able to, and they, 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 it worked out. And uh, just, to, just to see things happen, it wasn't, it wasn't my strength. It was your strength. It was the strength of the Lord in you, which is awesome. I think that's what this is talking about. 
Verse 6, In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile, and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. I love that. It's just Jerusalem's going to be there in their own place in Jerusalem. Remember after World War II, the Holocaust, you know, the people were saying, well, let's, let's give Israel this land. And I think it was like in Africa or somewhere, South Africa, somewhere down. They, just, they wanted to go to Australia or some other countries. They said, well, we'll let the Jews settle there. Well, no, no, no. God gave them back their land because he had a covenant with them, a land covenant with the people of Israel. A pan of burning coals placed in a wood pile. Can you imagine that? If we had this pile of dry firewood out and we stuck this, you know, this, well, a hibachi or something. You set a hibachi with burning coals in there. What's going to happen? The wood's going to catch on fire and it's going to burn up the wood. That's the picture that's being showed here. A fiery torch and a pile of dried up sheaves at harvest time. Everything's dry and, you know, the moisture's out of it. It's going to be like a wildfire. And what God is saying here is those who mess with his people in that day, they're going to be playing with fire and they're going to get point. (laughs) You play with fire, you're going to get point. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Jews will once more inhabit a literal Jerusalem. And, And of course, we've seen this partially fulfilled in our own generation. You know, of all the nations on earth that exist or have existed in the past, only Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is going to exist in eternity. There's not going to be an eternal New York or an eternal, you know, Bombay or just Jerusalem. That's the only city on on, on the entire planet that's going to exist into the future, into into eternity. Verse 7, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. Now, this is the first mention of the house of David, not only in this new prophecy, but actually all of Zechariah's visions and the words that were given him from the Lord. And it's mentioned five times in chapters 12 through 13. So if this is to be taken literally, and, and I'll give you a little bit of a clue, I look at the literal fulfillment of these prophecies. So evidently, if, that's, if this is to be taken literally, evidently there are Jews alive today that are descended from David's lineage. Now they may not know that, but God does. God knows who they are. Those who dwell in tents, think about that. How do you defend a tent? from a military attack. (laughs) You don't, right? Those who dwell in tents would be the least able to defend against a military attack. And the Lord is going to save those living in outlying areas first who don't have the defenses of maybe like a city like Jerusalem would have so that the inhabitants of Jerusalem are not going to be able to say that they had a hand in saving all Judah. In other words, God's saying there's no opportunity for you to take pride in any of this. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to fight your battle. In verse 8 and 9, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. In other words, even the weakest and most insignificant inhabitant of Jerusalem is going to be victorious. Again, the whole point in these nine verses is to make it clear that the Lord is fighting the battle for his people, for Judah, for Jerusalem, for Israel. The Lord is going to fight the battle for them in that day, and it's going to be such a miraculous deliverance, they will not be able to claim any credit for it. All of the glory belongs to the Lord. And isn't that 
just how the God, how God operates, you know, in our lives, things that just happen. It's like sometimes, you know, we get into a situation and it's like there's nothing we can do about it. So what do you do? You pray. You pray, and then the Lord does something, and, and, and you go, well, you know, I did it. No, no, no. God did it. God did it. And I love when the Lord does that. It's not comfortable when you're going through, like we're trying to sell the church, and all these things are happening and stuff. It's like, Lord, that's getting out of my control. And God says, yeah, I, I don't want it in your control because I'm in control. And he does that throughout our lives in so many things. And so the Lord gets the glory. The Lord gets the credit. Well, the next section, verses starting with verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of Shemai by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Now this passage of scripture here, it's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the entire nation the entire Jewish nation. And he is referred to as the spirit of grace and supplication. Now, it's interesting. There, are, You know, you, you think, well, grace, isn't that kind of like a New Testament term? You know, we're, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, not of our own works. Well, that's true. But you know the word grace is found 68 times in the Old Testament as well? Because God doesn't change. He hasn't changed. When the spirit is poured out on the nation of Israel, their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to see and recognize Jesus, the pierced one. And notice that this is the Lord God speaking again and he says that the inhabitants of Judah will look on me whom they pierced. God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit in this passage of Scripture and God the Holy Spirit points mankind to God the Son, the pierced one. And the outcome of having the Holy Spirit poured on them and that veil being lifted from their eyes to see Jesus is going to result in mourning over him. And you think, well, wait a minute. Why not joy? It's like, oh, there's Jesus. Well, that's going to come later. That'll come during the millennium. But first, there's a recognition that they crucified the Lord of glory. And if you look at this passage of Scripture, this is really how the Holy Spirit operates in all of our lives. The Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the spiritually blind, and what do they see? They see Jesus. And they see, then then there's this mourning, this feeling of, oh, it's my sin that made Calvary necessary. I'm the one that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sins that he died for. It was your sins that he died for. And as a result, again, there will be national mourning. And it says, like the mourning at Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. What was that all about? Well, There was this really good king of Judah named Josiah. And he did all kinds of reforms. And he was a a godly king. And he died in battle. And he died in battle in this place there near Megiddo. And the entire nation of Judah mourned his death. And so he's saying it's going to be like that. But obviously it'll be be more than that. 
And then next, notice he mentions the various families of Jews that are going to individually mourn. He says, from the house of David to the house of Nathan. In other words, from the greatest of David's descendants to the least, right? Because David, David's younger son was Nathan. From the house of Levi to the house of Shemai. Uh, in other words, from the greatest of the tribe of Levi to the, le- to the least to Levi's descendant Shemai. The wives of these families will individually mourn. In other words, and I think the point is getting across being made, all the inhabitants are going to individually mourn. And it's just like what Paul said in Romans. All Israel will be saved. Every one of them individually will be saved. By the way, this is no charge for you guys, but for you that are Bible students and you've come across this issue before, do you know that there really are no lost ten tribes of Israel? Sometimes go, well, wait a minute, only you know the, the, the ten northern tribes, they went into captivity. We don't know. There's no record of them returning. Judah went into captivity, and the people from Judah came back. So there's ten lost tribes. You know, where are they? Well, it's interesting. Notice that the house of Levi is mentioned here. The house of Levi is mentioned here. And if you looked in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they repeatedly refer to those exiles that came from the after the, the Babylonian exile. He They repeatedly referred to those exiles, the returnees, as the children of Israel. In Second Chronicles 11, verses 13 through 17, I'm kind of going on a little side, little rabbit trail here, but it tells us when Jeroboam appointed his own priests for the high places and the idols he erected, that the faithful of the Levites went down to, into Judah. They're like, he, they were no longer appointed to be priests. This is the, in the northern ten tribes. Jeroboam set up the, the calf, remember the golden calf, and he set up the false idols, and he appointed his own priests to do the, to do, and so the, the Levites that were spread out throughout all of Israel, they're like, man, that, this is not good. And so they went down into Judah. And you know what? As it is, as it should be, when the leaders set an example, people follow. And the Levites, they set that example. They said, this is not good. We're going to go down to Jerusalem and worship the Lord as he wants to be worshipped. And when he did it, it says there in that passage of Scripture um, that then those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers, so they strengthened the kingdom of Judah. In other words, God worked on the hearts of all the different tribes, the people in all the tribes, and they all went down into Judah at that point. So in other words, there's no lost ten tribes of of Israel. In Luke 2, verse 36, Anna was from the tribe of Asher. In James 1, 1, the introduction to the epistle says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. That scattered means lost in, or scattered in the dispersion, not lost, not to the, to the ten lost tribes of Israel. So anyways, again, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but um, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was interesting. Maybe you didn't. <laughs> um, so now we get to chapter 13. And chapter 13 describes the cleansing of the nation of Israel in that day. Again, in the same, that same time frame. Verse 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Uncleanness. 
Now, if you were with us when we went through the book of Ezekiel, or if you've read the book of Ezekiel, towards the end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's describing this millennial temple that's going to that's gonna exist in Jerusalem during the millennium. And he describes a river that flows out from under the threshold of this millennial temple. That's not what this is speaking about, by the way. This is speaking, this fountain is speaking of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is described as a fountain. How? Well, first of all, it's pure. It's fresh. It's clean. It it provides refreshment. It it provides life. And it's a fountain. It flows constantly. It has an inexhaustible supply. You might go, what are you talking about? Well, I always like that old hymn, There's Power in the Blood. Remember that? There's power. There's wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. It is so true because 2,000 years ago, a person who repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ Jesus, they were washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later, in, or roughly, in our generation, a person that's walked away from the Lord or, or never gave their heart to the Lord, now all of a sudden they, 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 realize, they, reckon, they see Jesus, they recognize their sins, and they repent of their sins. The blood of Jesus, even 2,000 years later, it's still flowing, it's still washing away sin. This is a constant inexhaustible supply. And it's always been available for the Jews since Calvary. And some have taken advantage of it. Some have cleansed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. But in that day, all Israel are going to wash themselves in the cleansing blood of the Lamb. Verse 2. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. And it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Now we know historically when the Jews returned from their exile in Babylon, on the whole, the reason why they went into captivity was because of idolatry. They adopted the idolatry of the nations around them. Um, But when they came back from Babylonian captivity, on the whole, as a nation, generally speaking, that issue with, with, with idolatry was gone. They weren't worshiping the idols of the land anymore. But you know what? Without the transformation of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, our nature is to slip into idolatry. If, without the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus walked the earth during his earthly ministry, they, the, the people weren't worshiping Baal like they had before, but they were worshiping Jewish legalism. That became their idol. They were worshiping the temple itself rather than the Lord God who the temple was all about. So they were still in idolatry, so to speak. I mean, you look at people today. People worship idols today. They don't have little statues that they bound down to. But anything that gets in the way of your relationship with the Lord God is, is an idol. If you put anything and you worship that above the Lord God, it's an idol. It could be a person. It could be a career. It could be any possessions. Anything could be an idol. By the time of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist, there's, gonna, there's this idolatry that's going to continue in Israel because the, the, the people are going to look at the Antichrist and they're going to worship him as the Messiah. 
and he's going to set up an image of himself and declare that he be worshipped as God. So that idolatry hasn't left, so to speak. But when the nation repents of their sin and is cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lord's going to purge them of idolatry once and for all. At that point, false prophets will no longer be able to deceive the people. And if they do, they're going to be executed. Their parents are going to kill them. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're, false, you're a false prophet, kill you. Uh, false prophets will be so ashamed and afraid to admit that they were false prophets. When confronted, they're going to deny it and say, hey, I've never been a false. I was a farmer. I was raised. My, my dad was a farmer. I, that's all I did. Zechariah 13, verse 6, And one of, will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, it's interesting. There's different ways to look at that verse. Is that the shepherd and the rest of the verses talking, or is this the false prophets? You could go either way with this, but in the Old Testament, false prophets, they would sometimes injure themselves as part of their practice, as part of their, their rituals. they get into a frenzy. Remember the prophets of Baal and Elijah? They wanted fire to come down from, they wanted Baal to light their altar, and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> and so they started cutting themselves and doing all kinds of like, and just made all kinds of commotion, because maybe then Baal will pay attention and do something. And, of course, he didn't, because he's not a, a true God. Well, someone will look at these false prophets, former false prophets, and say, hey, what are those cuts all over you? And in today's vernacular, he'll say, oh, that, it's just an old football injury. I mean, it's basically, they're, they're going to deny what happened, you know. I wasn't a false prophet. I think that's what this is meaning. It could mean different, but that's my take on it. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, this is... God the Father here speaking about striking the shepherd who is my companion, who is the Father's companion. That word companion, it means a relation, an associate, or a fellow. And so the Father is basically, of course, speaking about the shepherd who is Jesus Christ the Son. And Jesus takes this this verse... And the Bible says that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He knew this verse was speaking about him, and he quoted it to the disciples. This is speaking about Jesus himself. This was immediately fulfilled in the rest and the crucifixion of Jesus, right? After he was arrested, the disciples scattered, right? They, just, they went out into hiding, basically. But it also seems to address the Jews who are going to be living in that day from chapter 12. Because the sheep of Israel have been scattered, and how did that happen? Well, God basically lifted his hand of protection. Because God doesn't have to do anything. He just lifts his hand of protection, and, and that's when bad things happen. God lifted his hand of protection, and the result was Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome, and the Jews went into a worldwide dispersion. But in that day, God will once more have his hand on his people. And you might say, wait a minute. But it says his hand is against the little ones. Again, that's that same word that's mentioned in chapter 12, verse 1. The Hebrew word, and it also means for. So in other words, I believe this is saying, my hand is going to be for the little ones. In other words, I had lifted my hand off. They, went in, they, they, were, they were judged. They went into dispersion. But now I'm going to have my hands on them once more again. And that's going to happen during the tribulation when God deals once more with Israel. That period of time between the sheep will be scattered, and then I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's actually been about 2,000 years, roughly. 
Well, verse 8. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, this is the Lord my God. What's interesting, two-thirds of the Jewish population during the time of Jacob's trouble, the Great Tribulation, are not going to survive. There's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be things that are going to happen. People, uh, two-thirds, again, two-thirds are going to die, but the remnant, one-third, God is going to refine, although it's going to be through fire. It's gonna, it's, 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 the Bible describes the Great Tribulation as a time that's never been it's so bad. It's, there's never been a time in the history like it, and it'll never be a time like that again in, in the future. It'll be so bad. And it'll be a refining by fire. But when they get to the other side of that, it says, they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Because, you know, that's what refining does. Refining has a way of not only burning away the dross in our life, the dross in our life, the junk in our life, but it also has a way of purifying our relationship with the Lord. You think about how refining takes place. It's fire, right? You have to heat up the molten metal. You melt the metal, basically. You heat it up. All the impurities rise to the surface. And if you're smelting silver or gold, you know you heat it up, and, and as the stuff rises, the junk rises to the top, you scrape it away, and you scrape it away. And you, you get the junk out, and you, you keep heating it, and keep heating it, and scraping it away. And that's what refining is. That's what refining is in our life. The Lord puts us in a place where it's not comfortable, where, where there's fire. It's, it's, you know, things are upheaved in our life, and the junk comes to the surface, and then you allow the Lord to just scrape it away. And you know when the refiner knows that the refining's done? When he can see his reflection in the metal. And then all the dross is gone. That's what the Lord does in your and my life. He allows you and I to go through some difficult things because he's trying to refine us, and, and eventually he starts to see his own reflection in us as we submit to him. And it's a beautiful thing because at that point, there's that, there's that Lord, you're my God. You know, sometimes, and I don't pray difficult things on people. I mean, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't like it when people go through hard things. I mean, we pray for each other when there's difficult, terrible things that happen. But in a way, those things, if they didn't happen in our lives, what, how strong would our relationship be with the Lord? Because I don't need them then, right? I mean, things are going good. And, and I tell you, our tendency is to wander from the Lord in our relationship. That's our, that's our nature is our tendency. But it's when we go through those difficult times, that's when we get on our knees. That's the time where it's like, Lord, I'm helpless. I need you. And then the Lord comes and he does that, does that work that only he can do. And then our relationship, Lord, you're my God. Praise the Lord for those times. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as we have looked at this, and Lord, we, we have seen how you already have been working in the nation of Israel, even today, the nation state of Israel, Lord God, how you've done miraculous things in their history and Lord, we know that your word is true. And Lord, we know that these things will take place. And Lord, to see that after so many years, a nation was formed again in a day. And Lord, you've had your hand on them. Lord, what a comfort that is to, you, to, to us Gentile believers, Lord.
that we know that, Lord, your word is tr- has been true to them and will be true to them, and, Lord, your word is true to us, that you are faithful. Lord, that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, you're faithful to return. Lord, you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, even when we go through those times of refining, Lord, you're there with us in the fire as you were with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lord, what a blessing that is. And Father, I pray for each one of us. Lord, I know that there's some of us that are going through difficult times right now, maybe in a relationship or whatever, uh, just their life situation. Father, I pray that that time would not be a time that's that's wasted but lord it would be a time where you would just do that refining to draw them into a pure closer relationship with you lord god and that lord your reflection would be seen in their lives so i pray your blessing upon your people this morning i thank you for each every person here this morning i pray that you just guide them this coming week lord may they see your hand involved in their lives lord and it's in jesus name that we pray amen